Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Roundtable Podcast, where we interview experts who tackle the tough topics and share strategies and techniques that will help you start, build, and grow your real estate investing business. And now your host, Rob the House Guy. Pretty excited today because we've switched things up a little bit. Instead of having a roundtable of multiple investors, we've narrowed it down to a longtime friend of the show, Jeff Watson. And Jeff's not just a friend of the show, he's an attorney and a powerhouse in the real estate business. Welcome, Jeff. Rob, it's great to be back. Awesome. So today you're on the show because there's so many people that are not only just getting started, they've been in for a while, and they always have that same question. When's it time to lawyer up? When do I stop doing my own stuff and taking my three-ring binder of the forms I got in my weekend boot camp and actually get an attorney to do stuff? Right at the beginning, take those binders, take the forms you got, take them to your local lawyer and make sure that they're dialed in for your particular city, county, and state. And then the next thing I'm gonna tell you, Rob, is with your business plan, build into it a budget for keeping a lawyer on retainer and having a reserve in case you gotta pay extra because something starts to go sideways. That's how you're gonna save a deal. That's how you're gonna protect your investment. Are all lawyers created equal? Absolutely not. No way, Jose. <laughs> there are some lawyers that are brilliant in certain areas and they're absolutely clueless in certain areas. I mean, I should be accused of malpractice the moment I would touch certain kind of cases. I love hearing you say that because there's been so many times I've been on the other side of a deal and someone's like, well, I need my attorney to look this over. I'm like, they can look at it, it's fine. And next thing you know, they come back with these crazy revisions that make absolutely no sense and you ask, do they practice real estate law? And they go, no, it's a family friend. They're a divorce attorney. I'm like, no. I go, listen, go spend the money and take it to a real estate attorney to have them handle this because yep. I've seen some botched up stuff coming back out. Oh, yeah. It's, it's terrible. But at the same time, I shouldn't touch anything in criminal defense. Right. No way, Jose. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'd be guilty of that one. Um, but if, when it comes to real estate and IRA stuff, you know, that's, that's my passion. That's what I dialed in on over the last 25 years. So would it be a good idea, do you believe, that when someone's interviewing attorneys, not just ask their specialty, ask maybe over the last five years what type of continuing legal education they've taken to keep up with their credits? Not, that's a great, great question to ask when you're interviewing because the reason I love that question is you've shifted the whole mindset. You're making sure that that attorney is good enough to be brought on as part of your team. You're not there hat in hand begging, oh, please, lawyer, help me, help me. No, lawyer, are you good enough to be on my team? So CLE question, continuing legal education, great question. Also ask them, hey, by any chance, how many other investors do you represent? Right. Do you do any investing yourself? Great question. You know, those are some things you should ask. You'd be amazed at what you'll get for answers. I've always found that some attorneys will love, and I'm not throwing off on attorneys, <laughs> But some attorneys will love to switch things and change things just to change them. I mean, just to make some sort of justification for their billing. Yes. And I'm like, I've always wanted to take an attorney and have them draft a document for me, bring it back a year later, get rid of their name at the bottom and say, I was given this. What do you think about it? Yeah, just <laughs> to see. See, yeah. they're like, oh my yeah. gosh, section three, got to get rid of yeah. that. That's the death. <laughs> well, you know, and I've, I've caught myself doing that same thing where I'll keep flip-flopping back and forth between words and phrases, and it really drives my staff crazy. But the thing I want to give you another big takeaway, um, 
And Greg Clement paid me this compliment a long time ago, and I've really kept it close to heart. Greg says, Johnson, not only do you come, he says, I'll come to you with an idea and you'll tell me, no, you can't do that that way, but here's how you can do it. So if you find a lawyer that says you can't do that, then you go, well, how can I do it? That's great, great advice. That's a huge takeaway because clearly as an investor, we know like how not to do, get something done, but you have to have that advice. Right. And that's what I always say is when we're when people are going through the weekend coaching classes and everything else, well, that's fine. That's a great baseline. But that's not where education ends. That's just where it's barely beginning. Barely beginning, yes. I mean, the things I run across daily, literally, it's just mind-boggling. Like yesterday, for instance, right before we recorded, I got a phone call, and a deal's getting ready to close. The lady had power of attorney for her parents in a nursing home and everything else brings an unnotarized copy of a power of attorney in and thinks it's good to go. Nope. And everyone's so surprised except for the title agent and me. He's like, no, you actually have to have a legit notarized document. But there's no weekend class that's going to teach you that. And I only learned that through hiring attorneys and going through it multiple times. Well, the, 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 the bottom line takeaway is you're going to get better as an investor, both as an investor by doing more and more deals, just getting out there, making offers, be prepared to have it go sideways and figure out how to solve it. But you're also going to get better as you solve more problems and see and encounter more things. And don't think that you're always going to be locked in with the same lawyer. Because some lawyers are only good at certain things. And if that lawyer isn't growing and committed to growing their own knowledge base in the practice, particularly in real estate area, someday you're going to outgrow them. Oh, absolutely. I know you mentioned Greg earlier. Greg Clement, he's, yeah. he's the founder and the owner of uh, RealFlow. And he and I were talking about attorneys. And I was asking the same questions like, well, who do you recommend? And although he wouldn't dial in and say, well, we can't endorse one or the other, he started naming all the qualities to look for in an attorney. And exactly yeah. what you said, how he paid you that compliment was what you do. That's what he said to look for. Yeah, to look for somebody that can solve, get the deal done. So find a way to get the deal done. So let's bring it all the way back to the, the few things that you may need to turn for in the beginning. Let's start at day one here. Day the, one. The purchase agreement. Yes. Make sure that your paperwork for putting a property under contract and your paperwork for selling a property are good to go. Make sure that they've got the right stuff in there. And then it's pretty simple from there. Make sure that you know what else you have to add to it. Do you have to have the lead-based paint? Do you have to have Megan's Law? Do you have to have the residential real estate disclosure forms? Find out what all you got to have to make it a valid contract so the other side can't weasel out later on. I feel that with the with the purchase agreements that the real estate agents use. There's so much language in there that's there just to protect them that's unnecessary. I use a one page. I've been accused of, of saying, are you buying and selling a lawnmower here? It's like there needs some more things, but I don't like to confuse my sellers because a confused mind will say no. And sometimes attorneys, not you, but other attorneys, will load it up with so much protection that it scares them out of signing. Right. So how is it, what would you say in the purchase agreement, how can we be as simple as possible, but yet cover ourselves. What are like some of the key things for the state of Ohio? We're going to talk Ohio now because you're not going to practice law in every state. What are some key things that you should have in there in that one page agreement? Okay. Be abundantly clear on who is buying and who is selling. Full complete names, full complete contact information. Be very clear as to who's handling the closing, 
when is the closing supposed to occur, and who is paying how much and when, and how is it being paid. Then it's really a couple of simple things that got to be left over, okay? What happens if the house burns down while it's under contract but hasn't closed? And what happens to it if something goes wrong? If for some reason the seller can't get clear marketable title, what do you do? If for some reason the buyer can't close because they didn't have the money, what happens? What are the remedies in those, those situations? And that's all you really need to get a typical deal across the finish line and closed in Ohio today. Then make sure, of course, you've got the lead-based paint, the residential real estate disclosure form, and anything else that's required, and go from there. Do you feel that all that, it's not do you feel, is it law for our listeners that for the lead-based paint and all, if for doing investor-investor transactions as well for houses that nobody's ever lived in and... I want that because I want to make sure that I didn't leave something open later on. Okay? I would much rather have a residential real estate disclosure form and a lead-based paint form on there saying, never been in there, never lived in there, don't know, than for them to come back and say, well, you didn't disclose. Now, I've got a couple of cases I'm representing well-known investors right now over some of those issues. And so I'd rather over-disclose at the front end so that they can never say, well, you never told me. So we're talking about investors. What drives you crazy about investors? A new investor, what's the one thing when they sit down and start talking, you wish you could just grab them and slap them and say, stop saying stupid things? Um, yeah, there's about three things that come to my mind. Number one is the negative self-talk. And I'm guilty of that. I'm trying to clean the trash out of my head as well. And you got to work on it on a daily basis. The second thing is worrying about all the what ifs. Okay, we do not need to worry about what happens if the moon stops spinning around the planet Jupiter. We're not going to worry about all that stuff. Let's just get this deal closed. Let's focus on what really is likely to happen. And then the last thing is don't overcomplicate it. Yes. My motto is keep it super simple because like you said, confused minds say no. A lawyer that's confused is going to say, no, you can't do that. A seller who doesn't understand is going to say no. A end buyer who's confused is going to say no. Keep it super simple. Oh, absolutely. That Anyone can make something complicated. It takes a genius to make it simple. I forget who said that, but I love that saying. I completely agree. Yes. So going to bounce back to disclosures for a minute. Okay. And, and I, I know that you've dealt with this, and that's why I'm bringing <laughs> it up. And I'm in a similar situation, and I called the individual that you're representing to ask his opinion on it. But now that I have you on the show, some self-serving for being a host here. So I'm, I'm purchasing... Should I get out the meter and start charging? <laughs> yeah, start charging. <laughs> <laughs> Just bill it back to the producers. So I'm in the process of buying this house, and my son and I are walking through it, and as we're saying, oh, wow, she lived 98 years here. What a beautiful... I bet she really enjoyed her life, and um, things went well, and she just died happy. Well, that night I get a phone call and the wholesaler that's bringing it to me shares with me, yeah, I have to tell you something. It's not really written in disclosures, but the neighbor boy beat her to death with a club and stuffed her in a closet for three days and they found her. It's like, so if you want to back out, I'm like, well, I'm not sure if I want to back out. I want 20,000 off, but do I need to disclose that to my buyers that there was a murder in the house? That is a great question. Do you have to disclose criminal activity at the house and around the house. I'm going to tell you that the savvy investors that I work with, they know that because they pull that data as part of their due diligence. Okay. 
we pay we pay close attention to crime statistics regarding the stuff my clients are buying, particularly child molesters. Where are they living? How close to it, and so on. But right now, the law in Ohio is not clear. There's no requirement on the residential real estate disclosure you have to describe that a crime, a murder, or some other tra some other terrible thing happened in the house. But let's be real. The neighbors know. Exactly. The neighbors <laughs> are going to scare away people. So a client of mine had the same problem 12 years ago with a house that he was trying to flip. What you have to think about is not just what's required by law, but what's required for marketing that property. And figure out a way how to get around it. And I don't care if you come in there and hold some sort of cleansing service. Okay? Do it. Right. And that's exactly my answer, too. I said, I don't care if it's required by law or not. I'm going to disclose it, not out of fear of ending up in litigation, but just out of transparency because it's coming out anyhow. Yep. Because the neighbors love talking about anything, especially something like that. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's, you know, and I've had that happen with some of the deals that I've been involved in, you know, and just get ahead of it. Just get ahead of it and figure out a way that remediates it. You know, is there, while well, we've done the extra cleaning in the house to, you know, make sure there are no contaminants there. And, you know, so what else can we do from a moral or spiritual standpoint to try and restore this house? Well, that particular house we ended up not buying. They wouldn't go 20000 off the purchase price. And I felt that it would be a harder market to resell that house because yeah. it was a pretty fresh situation that had happened. And all that stuff still in everyone's mind. Unless you get someone like a, the Tate house that some rock star bought or something because I thought it was a wonderful thing. <laughs> so one of the things to think about is if you get stuck with one of those properties and you realize it because the, the seller didn't tell you and now you've got a crime scene house, think about rebranding it and positioning it to where part of the sale proceeds go to a victim's fund. Great answer. See, that's exactly what you're talking about. Don't say you can't do this. Find a good solution. Find a, find a solution, yeah. So then all of a sudden, oh, well, you know, if you're a neighbor to the house, well, don't you want to make, make this thing happen so that X percent of the sale proceeds go to the Ohio Crime Victims of Crime Fund? That's great. Or, you know, battered, battered shelter for battered or abused women or something like that, you know? And, okay, well, now you're interfering with a charitable work if you just <laughs> run the house down. I love it. That is great stuff. Hey, this is Andy from RealFlow, and a couple of the most common things we hear from our listeners are, I want to become a real estate investor, but I don't know where to start. Or, I have a real estate investing business, but I'm having trouble scaling it. We took these to heart and decided to create the Real Estate Investing Lifecycle, a downloadable PDF which lays out the six foundational steps required to run a successful real estate investing business. You can download your copy today at reilifecycle.com slash start. Happy investing. A lot of times, I know this is a sore subject with you, but people wholesale. <laughs> people <Hey>. are <laughs> Wholesaling, if done right, is completely legal. I hear you. So let's pretend some of these guys aren't doing it right. Because this I don't have to pretend. I know they're not. <laughs> it's happened to me twice in the last month that people have brought me houses. I look at them, I want it, and they don't even have a contract on it. And then they can't get the contract on it. Twice in one month that happened. So regardless, let's pretend they do have a contract. And let's pretend that they are selling it to an unethical buyer. And the unethical buyer goes and looks at the property and realizes, okay, party A is paying $50,000 for the house. He's trying to wholesale it to me for $60,000. 
So now this party goes and said, hey, look, they're trying to sell to me anyhow. How about I give you 55,000 for the house? Cut him out. They save $5,000. How is party A best to protect himself against party C cutting him out of the deal? All right, well, I'm going to renumber, reletter that for you. A would be the original seller, B would be the investor buyer, C would be the sleazebag investor. I caught that after I said That's it. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. A, it's a typical, typical A to B, B to C yes. setup, okay? So what B needs to do is two things. They need to make sure that they've got a good enough rapport, a good enough relationship. If you hear me talk, you're going to hear the word R word come out a lot. Good enough relationship with the seller, with A, that A doesn't want to do anything that's going to harm B. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if you feel like you've got a sleazebag looking at your deal, go ahead and tell A, you know what, we're going to go ahead and just put an affidavit of contract on the public record just saying that you and I have a deal that I've got to buy this house by the end of next month. That way everybody's clear that you and I have got a solid relationship. Is that okay with you? What the heck is an affidavit of contract and how is that going to affect anyone on this other party buying the property. Okay, so let's go back to what you said earlier regarding an unnotarized power of attorney. Yes. The only kind of documents that can be recorded on public record are those that have met a certain degree of legal formality, such as a document that's been signed, witnessed, and notarized. So an affidavit has to be signed by the affiant, that's the person stating the facts, has to have their signature witnessed and then notarized. Oftentimes, the notary can be the same witness in many states. But then that instrument, that document can then be recorded with a copy of the purchase agreement attached to it. Now it puts the whole world on notice that A and B have a relationship, that B is buying a house from A according to the terms of the attached contract. That means that if somebody else tries to interfere with that deal, a good title company is going to go, oh, wait a second. See, for you to buy this, there's an exception on the title commitment that's got to be resolved. you got to get this affidavit released or cleared. Well, C can't do it because he knows he's trying to cheat B, and B's the one that holds the power. Does that make sense, or did I totally no, confuse it, that? No, it makes complete sense. So for everyone that's listening, basically, the original buyer lets the world know he's buying. The new buyer tries to buy it and, and, says, can't. and can't do it. So what happens at that point? Then what happens at that point is A and B need to go back and kind of mend the relationship so that B can go ahead and either close on the deal or say, hey, A, looks like you tried to double deal me. I'm out of here. Take my money back and I'm gone. Good luck. Oh, by the way, if you're going to do that, release the affidavit. Don't let it stay out there. That is a sleazeball maneuver, leaving that kind of stuff that could potentially cloud the title. That's sleazeball. Get it off. If you're going to perform, you take care of it. It closes. It goes off. If you're not going to perform, if you pull out of the deal, get the affidavit removed. Does the original party have any recourse against the person that tried to backdoor them? The original party, are you referring the, the to original A? The original buyer. The original buyer, B, do they have any? They potentially do. They potentially do. They could, if they want to spend lots of money on litigation, they could go after for tortious interference of a contract. Right. And if it's a really big deal with a couple hundred thousand dollars of profit in there, yeah, it's worth it. But if it's a simple wholesale deal with five or six thousand dollars in it, forget it, move on. Instead, they're just better off, B's just better off letting all their ethical friends know that C's a scumbag. Just let them know that and then just release it yep. and let them have it. Yeah. Hey, I'm not slandering his character. I'm not liable. I'm just telling you he went around me, cut a deal apart, and stole, stole something out from underneath me. While we're on the topic of litigation, 
Yes. So I've only done it for 30 years, so I know just a little <laughs> bit about it. So I know it's a scary thing. Everyone's like, well, I don't want to be sued. But you know, if you're living a very simple life, working nine to five, and you're not involved in any business transactions, probably nothing will ever happen. Maybe someone falling on your sidewalk someday. But when you're buying and selling properties, leasing properties, and you're very active, there's a higher chance of having an issue. Yes. So lawyering up on stuff like that, there's a there's groups out that I won't mention by name that have a monthly fee that you can pay to that, hey, if you're ever sued, you can pay 20 bucks a month and we'll represent you and we'll take care of all your legal needs with professionals. How are they compared to relationship with someone like yourself or does someone like yourself work for those companies and they're getting you for 20 bucks a month? I'm gonna split that baby a different way. Okay. For a beginning investor, some of those companies where you got that annual or that monthly thing where you can get some basic general knowledge, those are some pretty good things for the basic general stuff. But when you get into a particular problem, you want to find out who's the expert in that particular area in that part of your state or county. I'm involved in some litigation right now where I am represented by the baddest man in the county. Every other lawyer in the courthouse knows you don't screw with my guy. Because why? Because I went and got the baddest dude in town. Wow. That's just, I knew what to go do. Now, there's people who hire me for that same reason because they know that if they hire me and I show up on something, they've got the guy with the reputation, the skill, and the knowledge to get it done. Well, that's it. With the, I tell everybody, it's about relationships. Again, we talk about relationships. I would not want to hire someone from outside my area that doesn't know anybody in that courthouse. You want the attorney that's walking in, that's talking to everybody in there, even the opposing counsel. Hey, we still golf on Friday after this is over? Great. Okay, let's get this going. Because right. you're more likely to strike a deal. Because most things are settled, not with the judge, not with the jury, out in the hallway. Dude, that is so <laughs> important. 99% of all lawsuits are settled. So when someone says to me, I got, I'm going to get sued and I'm going to lose, I'm going to go, wait a second. You're in that 1% category four years after that because most lawsuits take four years to, have, to go through the whole process. So there's a lot of paranoia over there, a lot of false information. you got to look at it from the purpose of who's going to be best to get this thing resolved. Do I have the right insurance coverage because the right insurance lawyer can get things settled faster than anybody else? Do I have the right general counsel? Do I have the right local counsel? What do I have? Somebody is gonna get this deal solved. And you wanna get you wanna get a lawyer on your team that's pragmatic for the big picture. Okay? Very pragmatic is to say, okay, here are our choices. What's the best business decision to make? All right, Jeff. Now the question. Everyone's watching these TV shows about flip this, flip that, everything else. Is this really a 30-minute adventure to buy, fix, and sell a house? When you're watching these shows, what kind of pitfalls or things you cringe at? Like, what are they doing? Man, that is a great question. Um, whether you're watching a rerun of L.A. Law or watching Law & Order or anything else that's a legal-related show, what they show is just a sliver of what it's like to really be a lawyer, to really try cases, to really be in the courtroom. And it's the same thing with these HGTV and all these flip this and you know, all that other stuff. They're just showing slivers, the slivers that are the best thing to show on TV. They're not giving you everything. They can't. Concrete doesn't cure in five minutes, okay? <laughs> Permits and inspections don't happen in 30 seconds, okay? It just doesn't happen. 
okay? Closings don't happen immediately. Real estate agents don't always call you back. Contractors don't show up on time. You're kidding. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's TV land. Yes. That's made for TV. It's, it's, good edu- it's good entertainment, okay? It's good entertainment, but it's not able to express what's really can, the complete picture. What I'm going to do is I'll just give a couple takeaways for everybody here. And I'm going to start with one, and then I'm going to have you give one. But my takeaway from all of this is that people need to treat real estate like a business. It is a real business. It is not a part-time hobby. We just make a bunch of money and move on. You have to factor in for legal expenses, accounting expenses, you, your contractors, dealing with cities, dealing with tenants, dealing with neighbors. There's a lot to deal with. There's and a lot. A lot. And you have to prepare yourself for that. I'm saying treat it like a business. So the question to you for a takeaway is, when someone's starting their new business, what is a good rule of thumb for percentage to set aside for legal counsel throughout their process for the next year? I would say setting aside somewhere between 5 and 7% of their revenue for both accounting and legal. Great answer. And that should pay for itself if you get a good accountant and you get a good lawyer that helps you set up the right structures and thinks about how to keep you out of trouble and how to maximize your your expenses and minimize your tax liability, that's 7% of your of your rev that should pay for itself and you'll get a great return on that. And plus, you'll sleep well at night. So for every 100,000 that you're making, take 7,000, put it aside, and then when you have that already budgeted in, it's not like you're really spending the money with the attorney. It was already spent. Right. You're just giving it to him. And I'm going to say not 100,000 net. I'm going to say 100,000 gross. Exactly. Because it's an expense of doing business. Yes, it is. And so budget you're right, budget in there. This the last takeaway that I want to share with people is this. Take the time to read the documents. Yes, you're not a lawyer, but you'd be amazed. They're in English. Yes, I realize it's a form of English called legalese, (laughs) but read it. You might find a whole lot of eye-opening stuff in there. Read it so that you understand what you're getting yourself into. And you might even find something for one of your contracts from somebody else's. (laughs) You never know. You never know. My stuff's been circulated around a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I see a lot of my contract clauses like popping back to me. I'm like, oh, the weapon came back to bite me. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, that's a compliment. I, lo- I look at it that way. It's a compliment. Well, Jeff, thanks as always for being on the show. I mean, it's great having you as a friend of this show to come on and give all your advice and insight because there's not a lot of people that have more insight than you. That's for sure. Well, I appreciate that. It's fun. Um, th- I enjoy this show. I watch every episode and learn a lot. So it's fun. So, thanks for having me back. Hey, thanks. You've all been watching the Real Estate Investing Roundtable. I'm your host, Rob the House Guy. And remember, nothing works unless you do. This episode is brought to you by RealFlow, the smart way to invest in real estate. All the tools you need to automate lead generation and marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe.